you're listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Transport for the North podcast. I am your host Gemma and today we're going to be bringing you another of the breakout sessions from our annual conference. This was the one all about how transport can help to make the North more inclusive. This session was hosted by Rob Parsons of the Northern Agenda and the panellists were Martin Tugwell, Chief Executive of Transport for the North, Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham, Gemma Tetlow from the Institute for Government and Ariana Giovannini from De Montfort University. A really important and interesting conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Hello and uh, good afternoon and welcome to this afternoon's breakout session uh, of the Transport for the North annual conference. We're going to be looking at how transport can make the North more inclusive. So I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda for Reach. Uh, We've got some great speakers today to tackle an issue that really gets to the heart of the mission for Transport for the North, and I think anyone who's involved in transport policy. So onto the topic at hand, um, Transport for the North's remit has always been to approach transport investment with regard to outcomes, so job creation, economic growth, not just transport for transport's sake. This includes from an economic perspective, but also a social perspective, ranging from addressing inequalities to accessibility. What we're looking to explore in this session is the role transport can play in addressing these issues. And hopefully, if Michael Gove is listening in his new office at the Ministry of Leveling Up, Housing and Communities, he might take some of our northern viewpoints on board. So let's introduce our speakers today. Uh, Martin Tugwell, who you've heard from already, is the Chief Executive of Transport for the North. um, And he has 20 years experience in transport and investment senior leadership roles in the public sector. Andy Burnham has been the Mayor of Greater Manchester since 2017 and was recently re-elected to serve until at least 2024. Among his signature policies has been to bring Greater Manchester's buses into public ownership, the only area outside London to have such a system, and he's held a number of key cabinet positions, including Health Secretary and Chief Secretary to the Treasury and was the former MP for Lee in Greater Manchester. Dr. Gemma Tetlow is Chief Economist at the Institute for Government, working across the Institute's programme areas. She joined the organisation in 2018, and before that was Economics Correspondent at the Financial Times, reporting on and analysing economic developments in the UK and around the world. And uh, joining us remotely, I think, is uh, Ariana Giovannini, who is an Associate Professor in Local Politics and Public Policy at De Montfort University. Between July 2019 and February 2020, she was director of the leading northern think tank, IPPR North, on a secondment basis. Her research focuses on territorial and local politics, governance rescaling, devolution, and democracy. So, uh, without further ado, why don't we hear from some of our speakers? So, first up is Martin Tugwell, Chief Executive of Transport for the North. Thanks very much. Um, And I'll kind of start off um, by just kind of doing a bit of a reflection, if you like, on how transport has a key role to play in um, making, uh, addressing social inequalities and exclusion. Uh, The thing for me about our transport strategy is the focus it needs to have about connecting people and places with services opportunities. And I think we need to keep that very much at the front of our mind because there are still 
far too many situations where um, there's a lack of choice, and that lack of choice might be uh, about the different types of choices available, but it might also be there's no choice because it's not affordable uh, to people. So cost and availability are very much factors in determining whether or not transport and our approach to transport is genuinely helping address matters of social uh, inclusion. That's why the work that we've been doing more recently as TFN around um, the transport effects of uh, transport-related social exclusion is going to be quite an important input into the refresh that we do later on the strategic transport plan, understanding the issue better than perhaps we've done in the past. And that's linked with the focus that we've had right the way throughout the uh, strategic transport plan and reinforced again in the Northern Transport Charter that we've launched today, this focus on the user. Why do people need to travel? What is their purpose? We often kind of need to remember that travel is a derived demand. It's done for a reason. And we need to recognise, and we've seen it perhaps accelerated in the last few months, the why, the why we travel constantly changes. So when we're looking at the future, we need to have a way of understanding um, and recognising that travel behaviours, travel choices, will continue to change. And that's again why the future travel scenarios work that we published earlier is so important. We don't know with certainty about the future, but we do have a sense of what are the potential options. And those future travel scenarios, linked with our work on the decarbonisation strategy, allow us to start tapping into some of this uh, agenda, perhaps in ways we haven't before. I suppose the thing that strikes me most is we've got to stop treating users as one homogenous group. All of us have different characteristics, different reasons as to why we travel, different, different reasons as to why we choose the way we travel. Um, and we need to be better understanding how those different characteristics influence and shape our travel choices. I remember reading once uh, uh, about a story about how, uh, I think it was in the West Midlands, there was an initiative to encourage a particular community to cycle more. And those promoting the scheme took their approach on cycling and just applied it. They hadn't actually appreciated that the community was one where it wasn't part of your childhood to have a bike and to learn how to ride at an early age. doesn't mean to say that you can't uh, help them learn that, but you have to understand what the cultural, societal, other factors are influencing these things. And all of that means we've got to be better at using different ways of appraising what is a good solution and what success looks like. It's not just the economy. It's the social, it's the environmental. How do we make use of that in terms of the assessment that we do? And linked with that is the work we're doing on uh, looking at the benefits of our investment as a program. So that we start to get a sense of we're investing in transport, not just because it's a good for the transport, but because it helps people to lead uh, longer and better, more fulfilling lives. And if we know that if we can keep people independent longer, we think about helping people in terms of their health and their social circumstances, we will know they'll have a longer, better quality of life and there'll be less cost incurred in the social and the health sector. Fundamentally, though, when it comes to transport and social inclusion, we've got to make sure that the, in addressing the challenge of decarbonisation, we make it fit and work for all. 
we don't inadvertently reinforce some of the divisions that currently exist. And I'm confident that we can do that moving forward, but it comes from an understanding of the user, it comes from an understanding of why people travel, and it comes from an understanding of how those things are going to change and making sure what we propose is capable and flexible enough to be able to respond to that. Thanks very much. Thank you, Martin. Um, so our next speaker is Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester. Andy, do you want to come up? Afternoon, uh, everybody. I think this um, is a question that we all need to really focus on uh, relentlessly because the truth of the matter is transport in the north of England currently isn't uh, an inclusive offer. If people are worried about safety late at night, um, they may think it's much safer to drive. Um, reliability can uh, also play on people's minds. You know, can people risk going for the last train at night or could they be left on a, on, a, on a platform? So there's the reliability issue. It's just straightforward access. It's the case that um, around 60% uh, of our train stations in Greater Manchester do not have step-free access. I did a video recently with a young campaigner from uh, Stockport, Nathaniel, who asked me to come out with him, uh, a disability campaigner. And we met at Reddish North Station early in the morning where I got off the platform to come and meet him. But he pointed out to me that he asked me to come to that station because if it was him, he wouldn't have been able to get off the train because there was no access um, from one platform to the, for the, to the other for people with uh, disabilities. And I, I've tried to say to the rail industry, it, it has to deal with this with much greater urgency. You know, in this day and age, to say to people with protected characteristics under the Equality Act 2012 that they can't use an essential public service in their community, it's an outrageous state of affairs that, that we are allowing that to happen. And I've kind of asked my team at TFGM, you know, if all things stay as they are, when will we have all, all stations step-free access in Greater Manchester? 2070. I mean, it's just not, not good enough. You know, we're failing a basic... Uh, uh, inclusion uh, test and also it's true of buses as well because disabled people or older people often don't know what what will turn up at the bus stop there's not clarity about the standards when it comes to disability access or whether well, there often are not any form of audio visual announcements on the buses so there's just basic questions of access that need to be need to be addressed and given much greater prominence in the transport debate you know the uh, access for all program is it feels to me to be a lowly priority Within, uh, within network rail. And I've said to them, look, you know, either do it or devolve them, and we will do it. You know, we will find ways of using the assets to raise money to pay for the access improvements. What, what cannot be acceptable is to leave these assets uh, inaccessible to people uh, living, living uh, close to them. But the, the main issue I wanted to address is cost. Th this is what is um, uh, making our uh, transport system exclusive rather than inclusive because it is way too expensive to travel around the north of England uh, right now. The individual modes of transport are too expensive. That journey I took from Manchester Piccadilly to Reddish North, I can't remember, it was about four pounds something or other for a six-minute train journey. Absolutely ri ridiculous. Trains are too expensive but obviously buses are way too expensive. I keep making the point that a single bus journey in Greater Manchester and here in Leeds or anywhere in the north 
can cost over four pounds, where it's one pound fifty capped in London. You know, how can that possibly be fair? How can it be right that public transport is more expensive in the more deprived parts of the country? And actually, if you then not just look at the modes individually, if you then think about travelling across Greater Manchester using the different modes in any given day, because there's no transferability with the uh, tickets, because if you leave the bus and you get on the, on the tram, you're uh, effectively starting a whole new, uh, new journey and your, your other journeys are not visible. You, can spend, you could spend easily 20, 30 pounds uh, making multimodal journeys across Greater Manchester in any given day, whereas obviously in London there's a cap on what people, uh, people can spend. So the cost of public transport is, is way higher in the north of England than it is in London. And one thing I wanted to say today is, you know, we need to perhaps talk more about this as transport for the north, rather than always, we do talk about the big infrastructure and that's important, but I think Tracy was making this point this morning. Focus more on things that actually are people's real experience of the transport system. And I, I believe we should be saying, if we're to be levelled up with London, which is the promise, we'll, we'll level us up by giving us the same bus fares as London, £1.55 per journey in the north of England. That would be a game changer for millions of people uh, across uh, the whole of the north of England and it would actually be a, a, a change that they would realise, they, they would uh, notice uh, in, their, in their lives. So the, the cost of public transport in my view needs to come uh, right, uh, right down. We're an outlier at the moment if you look around the world, um, it, it's much more expensive to travel by public transport here. It's why the car for many people across the north is the, is the preferred option. We should be looking at a much more accessible and inclusive and affordable uh, public transport system. The vision we're developing in Greater Manchester is of a London-style system over bus and tram by 2024, uh, the B network. Um, it will be uh, fully integrated with regards to, to ticketing. We would have the ambition of London-level fares. And we are now saying to the government, look, work in partnership with us and deliver this. Because if you delivered a, an inclusive, accessible public transport system of that kind to 2.8 million people, that is tangible evidence of levelling up. That would kind of meet the test of what levelling up uh, should, be, uh, should be all uh, about. That is the foundation for a more productive economy. It links our residents to jobs and opportunity if they were to have uh, journeys of that kind. So uh, for us, I suppose, in... in, in conclusion, we have a Metrolink system, a tram system that we would say has excellent standards of disability access because it's street level, or surface level access across uh, the system. It's got all of the um, uh, spatial uh, arrangements that make it use, uh, easy to use for disabled uh, people. Uh, it is more affordable because we have already introduced uh, a cap on, on the Metrolink uh, system. We believe in time, we need to apply Metrolink standards to bus and then ultimately to train to create a London-style public transport system in Greater Manchester. And if we did that, we think we'd have a much more uh, inclusive system for our residents to use. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Andy. Uh, so our next speaker is uh, Dr Gemma Tetlow, who is Chief Economist at the Institute for Government. Gemma. I wanted to uh, make three points today. The first is about what do we mean by inclusion. Secondly, questions about future uncertainty. And thirdly, about evaluation. 
Um, to start on the first one, what do we mean by inclusion? Obviously, we could mean lots of these things, and Andy and Martin have both touched on different aspects of inclusion. But I think even if you'll allow me to sort of focus on economic inclusion, I think there are important questions to be asked about what the objective is and how that influences the sort of transport strategies that we adopt. And this is partly a question for Transport for the North, but it's certainly a question for the central government objectives at the moment, and that clearly has knock-on implications for transport in the North because it will affect how central government funding is allocated in future years. And we could think of economic inclusion in two ways. One is, are we simply trying to ensure that everyone has the opportunity to access economic activity and economic opportunities that are out there? Or do we mean something deeper? Do we want to ensure that economic opportunities are spread across towns and communities across the country? And at the moment, there's a tension in how central government talks about this within the levelling up agenda. On the one hand, the Treasury's plan for growth published alongside the March budget talked about the role of regional cities to be the driving force of economic growth. And that might lead you to think about how do we improve access to cities for people who perhaps in live, live in outlying communities and increase um, transport across cities. But on the other hand, there have also been statements from the Prime Minister, um, from Grant Shapps and others, that suggest that actually drawing people out of towns into cities could actually be in itself seen as a bad outcome, that actually we want economic opportunities to be spread across towns. And so we, we want not only to ensure that people can access economic opportunities in the centre of cities, but actually that those economic opportunities are available in their own local towns. I think answering that question um, is quite crucial to thinking about what are the optimal transport strategies we should be aiming for, because they would um, speak to quite different uh, solutions. Um, on future uncertainty, Martin already touched on this. Uh, the pandemic has clearly created huge change in the way that people lived their lives, at least for 18 months, in the way that people worked, commuted, socialised, shopped. Um, and the difficulty of thinking about what, what should our transport objectives be at this moment in time is we don't really know at the moment how much of that change in lifestyle is going to persist and how much it, we will simply revert back to normal. It, it's always difficult for transport planning because it happens over decades, if not centuries, um, to sort of think about how do we deal with that uncertainty and how do we plan in the face of that uncertainty. But I think it's probably even more uh, difficult at the moment. And traditional ways of uh, looking at evidence and thinking about the costs and benefits of different um, possible policies, the sort of traditional benefit-cost ratios tend not to do a terribly good job of factoring in that uncertainty. Whilst business cases might take on board a few different scenarios for the future, sometimes policymakers can get too focused down on the most likely scenario and which option looks best in that circumstance. I think now more than ever, uh, thinking about which potential transport policies are more robust to potential different states of the world in future will be particularly important. Uh, it's finally on evaluation. Um, it was really um, pleased to hear Rob sort of reiterate um, one of the strategy points for Transport for the North, which is that transport is not there for transport's sake, it's the outcomes that matter. Um, in the UK, whilst we have actually a really strong uh, community of people producing evidence to inform transport policy making, the UK, like to be honest, most other countries, is rather poor at actually evaluating ex post what whether uh, policies achieved what was intended and so doing that evaluation then learning from it and 
taking that learning over into future policies. So if I was to uh, sort of encourage Transport for North to do one thing, it would be to really take more seriously evaluation in, when planning policies, put money aside to allow that evaluation one years, five years down the line to, th to look at, did it actually achieve what was expected? If it did, how can we learn from that to make sure that future policies are effective? If it didn't, then what could we do differently in future? Um, and in, in part, this is a question for those people implementing policies. It's also something where we certainly at the Institute for Government are encouraging central government to think more about this because too often money is given to transport projects without that funding for years down the line to actually be able to carry out that evaluation. The money kind of gets cut off once it's implemented. Um, so we think that's one very important area to ensure that transport policy really does achieve what was intended. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gemma. Uh, so our final uh, speaker is Ariana Giovannini, who is Associate Professor in Local Politics at De Montford University in Leicester, who is joining us, I think, remotely. Ah, there she is. Hi, Ariana. And here in the North, there is a clear vision about what needs to be done to build a strong, accessible and sustainable transport network. We've heard it. We've heard like the ideas uh, and, uh, about what needs to be done. Been, they, they have been clearly illustrated uh, by other speakers on this panel and uh, across the conference this morning. So certainly there is no shortage of, or, of ideas or visions or plans. They are here. They are ready. But what is lacking is the power and funding to make this change. Uh, happen. And that's why, in my view, real devolution of power and resources, including on transport, should be the top priority uh, right now. Of course, the upcoming and hopefully this time uh, um, delivered on time levelling up white paper offers a unique opportunity for the government to show its commitment to rebalance the economy and ensure that all communities can prosper. But in particular, since the start of the pandemic, at least, we've seen central government uh, going back into a sort of top-down command and control mode. And beyond rhetoric, um, the devolution agenda has essentially stalled. And investment seems to be uh, uh, in increasingly directed towards certain areas in the north, but certainly not all. And that's why the work of mayors across the north, local leaders across the north, and institutions like Transport for the North is absolutely essential. If central government is not proving particularly prone to listen, then the pressure needs to come from below, from our local and regional institutions, because all people and places across the north deserve a better quality of life and economic and as well as social prospects. And transport is crucial to achieve this. But at this point in time, I think that it is essential to keep pushing for change, for more real devolution from the bottom up and ensure that the government uh, put this at the core of its levelling up uh, agenda. Thank you very much. Um, so we uh, have got a, a few minutes now for questions. We'll, we'll have a few general questions for our panel here, and then uh, we can take questions from the floor uh, in, the, in the time that's remaining. I'll start off with a, a general uh, question. I mean, I think everyone would agree that transport plays a big role in addressing economic inequalities. But is it the case that if we get transport right in the north, the rest of it falls into place, or are, are there other things that need to happen as well? You know, devolution of powers and the skills, all, the, all these different agendas that we talk about. Where, where does transport rank in terms of the importance of achieving what we what we want to achieve? That's, I'll, I'll start with you, Martin. Well, un un undoubtedly, transport is a key part of the 
uh, the solution, but it isn't the only solution. And I think um, we often talk about um, a need for a place-based approach, um, and, and you only get that by understanding what transport's role is in, in enabling um, a much wider agenda to happen uh, at the local level. And I think this is, for me, one of the challenges for the transport profession, which is that we've got to start looking at these issues from the other end of the telescope. Too often we've thought about how do we make the investment, how do we make the justification for the investment in transport, oh, well, how do we take account of social and environmental aspects as, a, as, as, as part of that project? I'd much rather we start thinking, what are we trying to achieve for our communities? And what are we trying to achieve in terms of social access, uh, environmental impact? And then challenge ourselves to design the transport solutions that enable that vision to be realized at the local level, led by the local political leaders. Thank you, Martin. Gemma, what's your, what's your view on this transport versus other factors in terms of uh, bridging regional inequalities? Transport's definitely <clears throat> part of the answer. I think typically the one big thing that businesses point to um, holding back development uh, in the UK is actually a lack of skills uh, rather than transport per se. So I think if I had to pick one, I think skills is probably uh, the priority in this an area of policy that has constantly uh, been rather difficult to get right. Um, I, the pandemic showed that where you are perhaps doesn't matter as much as we thought it did. Um, having said that, uh, I think we may well shift back to pre-pandemic ways of being uh, more, more than I think some of the sort of um, most ambitious, the world has changed kind of rhetoric um, might have pointed to. Um, but this is the first time I've been out of London for any kind of work activity for 18 months. Um, and we certainly did find that you could get in, get in touch with people all over the country much more easily than I think perhaps we had realised pre-pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Andy, you've got a few different levers that you can pull as Greater Manchester Mayor. Which, which one do you feel you need to pull the hardest to, to, to achieve uh, sort of the, the, the aims that you want to achieve? Well, it is transport, Rob, without a, a doubt. I think you know, we can legitimately say that the city region is world-class in a number of respects now in terms of its uh, offer, but we can't say that about transport. You know, I think that is the thing that's holding us back. I think it's the weakest part of the city region at the moment, and you can, you can see that in the levels of, of road congestion, certainly pre-pandemic, I think we had a, a, a growing problem with that for the reasons I was saying before, the car is the default option for many people in the city region because of the poor quality of the transport offer. So from my, as I see it right now, I am very focused on skills important too, don't, don't get me wrong, uh, and I think it was transport and skills that were identified by the Northern Powerhouse independent economic review a number of years ago was the two things that are, are a drag on the productivity of the uh, north of England economy. So they're, 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 the, I think they're the twin things that we need to really focus on. But, but I'm very, very focused on this uh, concept of a London-style public transport system in Greater Manchester. And you know, just again, to sort of visualize that for people, if people could imagine using our buses and trams as one system, where the buses perhaps are doing more orbital connections, delivering people to the tram, integrated ticketing, tap in, tap out, um, a daily cap on what people could spend. I, th I personally think that that is the foundation for a much more productive economy in Greater Manchester. And I think it does touch on what you were saying, Gemma, about the way, the way 
the economy has changed over the years. You know, there was a time when people in the north would live and work in the same town. You know, that was typical of large, large parts of the north of England. And those days have gone, and it's more likely now that people will have to travel to where they, uh, where they work. Uh, in our case, you know, there's Media City, there's Oxford Road, there's clusters of, of, of employment in, in certain parts of the city region. And that means you have to have a public transport system that supports people's ability to access that, that work. You know, it needs to be easy for somebody from Oldham to get to the airport to, to work or to get to Media City, and it's not at the moment. And, you know, so for me, this is, this is holding, us, holding us back. And if you think about it from a visitor economy point of view, go to any second city around Europe, people will just expect to see an easy-to-use, convenient, single-livery public transport offer. And, you know, ours is, and, and it's true of all English cities outside of London, ours is not like that at all. It's probably bewildering, I would imagine, and frustrating because of the cost of it. So, for me, if, if there's one thing that I think that would kind of lift us to a, getting towards being a truly world-class city in, a, in almost every respect, it is a, a, a huge jump in the, in the quality of the transport offer. And the pitch I'm making to the government is, if they back us with the investment to do it, and, the, uh, and if necessary the powers, although we are using the powers in the, that we've been given with regard to the buses, we feel we could do it by May 2024. So it's not sort of promised you know, in the distant 30s or something. This, this could be done in a very, very uh, realistic time frame. And, and if they do it for us, then there's a template there to take to Leeds, to take to Liverpool, to take to Newcastle. You know, that, that, that makes levelling up real and defined in a way that it just isn't at the moment. Uh, a London-style public transport system with London level fares for 2.8 million people, that is levelling up. And, and I think that's why the government should back it, because it's a, it's a clear definition of what they say they're trying to achieve. So is it as simple as just... If you bring the buses under public control, if you regulate them, then the, the, these improvements that you're seeking, they will happen quite quickly, or are there other, other factors that will have to work to, for it to work? Well, I think that's the enabler, isn't it? Because I think it's only when you've got the, the system under the control of one set of principles that you can actually do what London has done. You can't do it, I don't think, through, through partnership. It has to be through having control so that there is one decision about deciding where the routes go, what the charge, because then the, 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 um, the structure of that integrated ticketing, that Oyster-style system, um, it works, doesn't it, if, if you've got um, you know, the control of the, whole, of the whole system. And in time, our vision would be to bring uh, rail, commuter rail, into the, same, into the same system, and that's more of a 10-year objective. But I think the bus and... You know, just Metrolink today runs on renewable energy. As I said, it's a very accessible system. It's not as affordable as I would like it to be because it runs on its own revenue. We don't get any subsidy for any, you know, any operating subsidy for Metrolink. But given that, it's, a re it's reasonably affordable as well. But I think if you could just imagine Metrolink almost quadrupling in size because the buses have come into it and they're largely electric as well. And we have a sort of I'm after a sort of bus, a template bus for GM, so that every resident knows what will pull up at the curb, you know, every time they go to a bus stop, you know, in the same way that route masters in London. This is the step change that I think we need to make, and actually franchising is the sort of first enabler to allow it, allow it to happen. We, we looked at it carefully, but we did not believe if for a second we could do it through partnership. Andy, thank you. Uh, 
Ariana Giovannini um, on the, the aims that we, we've all been talking about. Is, is, is transport the number one thing that we need to get right, or is, it, is there a wider, a wider process that we, need to, that we need to follow? Well, I think that transport is absolutely essential. There is no doubt uh, about that. Uh, but I think that if you listen at what Andy said now um, and what other speakers have also highlighted, um, I'll go back to what I, what I mentioned in my opening remarks. All of this needs a real system of devolution uh, to happen. Uh, it needs the government to understand once and for all that there are things that can only be delivered locally. And, 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 and that's the only way to actually uh, ensure that leveling up happens, not just not just a, a, as a slogan, but actually uh, in practice. Um, the list of things that need to be addressed is very long. It includes transport skill, skills, housing, local government funding, until we get a functioning system of subnational governance, where actually uh, local leaders, uh, our councils, uh, combined authorities, and mayors actually can can you know have the, the means uh, um, and the funding and the powers that they need to deliver change on the ground, well, it's going to be difficult to deliver leveling up. So certainly transport is absolutely essential, but if we look at the bigger picture, I think that is becoming increasingly clear that it is the time now to have a proper system of uh, devolution. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, one of the things that's come across quite strongly from everyone is, is you know, the need to focus on people's real-life experiences and whether it's uh, you know, disabled passengers who can't get on trains or people on lower wages who can't afford the, 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 the fares. So it's obviously very important to have a, a network that's accessible to everyone. What should the priorities be in, in the short term? How, how, do we, how do we bring that about? And is it, is it something that, that yeah, going back to Ariana's point, needs to be uh, driven locally, or can central government, you know, operators? What, what's, how, do we, how do we get that accessible transport network that we all want, Martin? Um, well, it's <laughs> it, it is about. I think it's we've we've touched on it a lot already, um, quite a bit today, because it is about getting that devolution. Um, who's better placed to understand the needs of the the community and how best to use the funding that available? than the local political leaders. Um, sometimes this is not as much about, we'll always want to make the case for additional investment in, in transport, but sometimes it's about being smarter in the, what we've got and how we use it. And of course, we've got to make sure in this agenda, we don't just talk about, we, we, well, we recognize there's a, an issue that we have to uh, support our rural communities just as much as our urban communities because in terms of social inclusion and equality, the challenges with some of our rural communities for whom there really is no practical alternative at the moment to the car uh, and where the car will continue to be a key uh, part of the transport system. We need to make these solutions work in a decarbonisation uh, strategy. We need those solutions to work for uh, the rural communities just as much as the urban. And again, that reinforces the importance of having devolution. It reinforces the importance of partnership between the political and the public sector leadership and those delivering the services. And I think that's one of the things that we can do at a regional level through Transport for the North and then work with the leadership provided by the metro mayors and the leaders of the, the, the local authorities outside the metro areas to see how we actually realise that potential. Yeah, absolutely. Gemma, what's, what, what's your view? What's, how do we achieve, bring about this accessible transport network that everyone 
can access and you know, can bring about the greatest, the greatest gains. There are clearly some aspects of transport policy that do need to be planned at a national level. Um, and actually, the UK sort of lacks a national strategy across all modes of transport, rather than just having a rail strategy, a road strategy, um, etc. But I think Martin and Andy are right that many decisions about specific transport policies don't need to be centrally coordinated and can much more effectively be designed by people on the ground closer to where the decisions are being made. So you need that kind of multi-tier decision-making, essentially. Um, one thing that hasn't really come up in the discussions so far, but will definitely impact on affordability of transport in the future, is what we do going forwards about public funding of transport. And during the pandemic, unfortunately, because everyone stopped commuting, um, central government has had to uh, subsidize um, the train companies, uh, Transport for London and others. And so I think one crucial question for the next spending review period and beyond that is what, to what extent do commuters come back? What's the private demand? What's the willingness to pay for transport? And to what extent do we need public funding to ensure that we have the range of transport needed and that it's accessible enough to people of different income levels? Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Andy, the, the, the key to an accessible transport network as far as you're concerned? I think there's a lot of change needed within the Department for Transport because in my experience they have the modes in quite mm. sort of rigid silos to be honest. And I, I think accessibility comes from integration and there has to be a vision of integrated transport at the city region level where you make it easy for people to, to use modes flexibly. Um, that then opens up a much more accessible uh, system uh, and I think that does mean you know, changing the way people think, uh, think about, about transport. Um, I, I hear what Gemma is saying about the cost but if you look around the world actually, countries around the world are subsidising public transport for climate uh, reasons, um, also for economic reasons, social reasons as well though. You know, it, it, massively opens up opportunity if you, if you reduce the cost of public transport, particularly to, uh, to younger people. So if ever I want to do my heart good, I, um, I look at the emails that come in in relation to the, the free bus pass for 16 to 18s that I introduce, mm -hmm. and there's a lot coming in at the moment because they've all just, the new cohort have just taken up their free, free pass. And it's, honestly, it's, 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 I know it, may not think so to us, when we're, you know, but it's life-changing mm. for some of these kids. The idea that they can have free bus travel at 16, it means they go to the college they really want to go to rather than the one that they know they can walk to. You know, it, it, free transport or subsidised transport, I think, brings a range of environmental benefits, uh, congestion benefits, but also social benefits. And, and if we can't do it for everybody, I certainly believe a subsidised transport offer for younger people is a, a very important, uh, important thing to do. So, you know, we've done, we found a way of doing that locally to, to make that free bus um, pass stand up. And I would definitely say that the benefits of it are already multiplying. So transport, can have, you know, it's a, it's a good place to look, I think, to give, you know, to, to give, to boost aspiration, basically. Um, to, to increase uh, people's uh, skills, um, you know, and it's, it's often neglected for that reason. I think we should look at it more as a country. We've kind of left it to the market in this mm. country way too much, I think. And consequently, rail fares are expensive, bus fares are expensive, 
expensive, as I've said. And, and they may limit people's life chances at a, at a younger, younger age. I've, I've just, some of the stats that some of my team have given me, I think there's evidence that young disabled people have, have been denied employment opportunities because of the inaccessibility of the transport system, You're unable to get to job interviews and, and, that, and that kind of thing. I, definitely this is something to look at. If, if a young person in Greater Manchester is given a job interview in London, and the time of that interview that they're given is, let's say, 10 o'clock in the morning. What do they do? What, what do they do? Do they go the night before? Well, where are they going to stay? And how much is that going to cost? If they go on the morning, how on earth will they afford that ticket to London to get for that interview in peak time? They can't, can they? And I, I, I honestly, I think the cost of public transport in this country is way, way too high. Um, and it actually becomes a sort of a, a barrier to social mobility. And I think the direction of travel around the world is to, is to subsidize it. And I think that's exactly what we should do. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Ariana, what's your, what's your view? What's the, the big priority in making the transport network accessible for people? I'll be brief because I agree very much with what has been said so far. I think that uh, what is essential is, is to put the users at the center uh, of planning and design uh, transport, uh, transport policy that have accessibility and environmental sustainability at its heart. And if we look on the ground, the good example again come from what we see across the north. Andy has just mentioned what he's been doing in Greater Manchester. I think that the very idea of a free uh, bus pass for young people is something that really can transform uh, lives or that focus on integrating uh, the, 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 the transport system. Transport for the North itself has been doing a lot uh, as reflected in, in its charter and in the um, uh, decarbonization, decarbonization agenda. But essentially, we are back again to the same point. This can only be done uh, locally. Uh, the, the, the type of uh, transport policy that we see uh, being delivered from the centre cannot take into consideration this kind of small granular element of accessibility. And so that's why it's important that uh, um, uh, leaders at the local level are not just able to uh, uh, deliver uh, uh, on transport policy that is designed as well, but actually to be part of that design process, putting the communities that they are elected to serve at the core of that process. Fantastic. Ariana, thank you very much. Um, so we've got time now for some questions from the audience, if anyone has got questions for our, our panel here. Uh, so in the white jacket over there. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. My name's Adrian Gollum, Bolton Rail Users Group. Um, I, I have to agree with pretty well everything that's been said, um, and a lot has been said about high-speed rail, which I'm delighted to see as part of their justification freeing up capacity for local services. But we need desperately capacity on the local services. Um, there's so many pinch points in the network that unless we can overcome those, we're never going to achieve any levelling up in the north. I don't need to remind you, uh, uh, Mayor Andy Burnham, about the Castlefield Corridor. It's a disaster which prevents proper access between north and south of Manchester. Um, if you catch the train back to Manchester, you'll find that at 4.15 it drops from half hourly to hourly during the rush hour. That's nonsense, but presumably it's to allow 
the local commuter services out of Leeds to take up that capacity. There's just a shortage there. My own local line, until about five years ago, was single track, only could cope with one train an hour. It's been dueled as far as Darwin and can now take two an hour, but needs desperately to be dueled for the rest of the way. But we're all, I think, talking about investment. Now, the Treasury, they say, knows the cost of everything, but knows nothing about the value of investments. Um, and to have investments, we need Treasury backing. Um, now, the Treasury, I've always believed, has two heads. It has the Chancellor representing the government policy, and it has the civil service representing their own policy. And very often, those two policies are at odds with one another. When we had George Osborne in the Treasury, at least we had a Northern MP who was the architect of the levelling up project. So what confidence do you have that the Treasury is going to cough up for the North all of the money needed for these investments? Because without that, we'll get nowhere. Thank you very much. Well, so the question I think was, what confidence do we have that the Treasury is going to cough up for the North? Uh, who, who would like to come in on come in on that one? Nice, easy question. Uh, shall I come in? Um, uh, diminishing confidence, I think, is the honest answer because of the sort of smoke signals that are coming out of the uh, Treasury at the moment, um, and, and I think it's it's a mistake. Um, if they are seriously about to downgrade our ambitions for, for rail, because if you go back to the George Osborne vision, bringing the big cities of the north together, which is what the northern powerhouse was about, you know, linking them more through better connectivity, it was all about a vision for us being globally strong as a more productive economy in the 21st century, and short-term treasury decisions just to chop bits of money out here and there, We'll, we'll, we'll destroy that, uh, that, that vision and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll be set back for uh, another uh, uh, 50 or so years. So I, I'm, I'm worried because I'm not hearing, I, I'm not making a political point here, I'm just reflecting what I'm, what I'm hearing. And, and actually here's where Transport for the North needs a, a real good, uh, a good shout out because on the Castlefield corridor, it, it was Transport for the North that, that really got underneath the problems of the May 2018 timetable. You know, it, we were the ones who focused on We said to them that they needed to carry through the logic of the Audsall Cord and keep the capacity building through, and platforms 15 and 16 at Piccadilly uh, were, were essential. And, and it's been TFN in the last month or so that's got platforms 15 and 16 back on back on the national agenda with the um, Department for Transport. So it's a struggle is what I would say. And I'll say this maybe a bit more in the final comments I make later today. We're, we're hearing that the prospects are not looking good for Northern Powerhouse Rail. We're being told that we have to accept a surface station at Manchester Piccadilly, which we do not believe is the right option for the future. Manchester's problem is there's too much happening on the surface. It's too congested. It's got, to have, it's got to be a tunneled solution in our, in our view, otherwise we're repeating the mistakes of the past. And yet, still, they still keep pushing the cut price option uh, on us. So I think we've got a job on our hands, but it's why Transport for the North is important, and it's why I'm here today, and it's why I hope all of you continue to support it. We have to have 
an independent, cross-geography, cross-party voice for the north of England when it comes to these crucial decisions on transport, infrastructure, investment. Uh, because we are going to have to make the case in Parliament, I think now, because this, as you correctly point out, David, the civil servants don't necessarily fight our corner. In fact, their default position is to cut, cut costs in the north, having spent all the money down south, and that's definitely the, the evolving story with HS2. Um, the, the money has gone into protecting the Chilterns and spending all the money in, in the north of London. Uh, it is not going into um, HS2 north of, north of Birmingham. And it's the same old story, and it's why we have got a transport system that is, is nowhere near uh, what, what, it, what it is in other parts of the country. So there's a fight on our hands, but that's why everyone should, should rally to this Transport for the North cause. You know, this, this voice is going to be really needed in the coming period. Can I ask you, Andy, there's uh, a body that was set up last summer, the Northern Transport Acceleration Council, set up by Grant Shapps, uh, apparently to speed up infrastructure projects and think about the aims that we're describing. I'm, I'm guessing you'll have sat in on one or two of those. I mean, is, is it a useful, a useful body? Um, I, I wouldn't say it's achieved anything yet. I'm not, I wasn't opposed to it when the um, Transport Secretary you know, put it forward, because we all want to see acceleration. But what I also said to him was, but that doesn't mean downgrading of ambition, because I think it was the department's choice that they wanted to try and downgrade TFN completely. And I said, no, 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 you know, I don't mind the acceleration as long as there's always a voice to speak for the ambition that there should be in the vision for transport uh, in the north. And I think they wanted, if I'm honest, TFN out of the way, and they just wanted to be able to just accelerate suboptimal schemes on us. And, I, and I'm glad that we're still here and we're still fighting as transport uh, for the north. Um, so I'm not against accelerated delivery, of course not, but I'm against cut price substandard delivery, uh, which is what I feel we're still being offered at, at Piccadilly. We have a surface proposal there that takes away all of our development land north of the station. If that was London, they just couldn't do that. They'd have to tunnel in London because there's already buildings around every station in London, so they'd have to go down. Whereas because they don't have to go down in Manchester, they said, right, we'll just take that land then. And all you'll get is a monstrosity of a surface station taking away all of the development land and this is the point, they've got, they've got a transport head-on, not as Martin said, a place-based, they're not looking at it from a place-based point of view. And that is what you get if you just let them accelerate delivery rather than actually really thinking through what the right ambition uh, for, for transport in the north is. And I've just, you know, I'm determined to make sure that TFN uh, continues to play a really important role in in, in fighting these arguments because they're not one and these will define us for the rest of our lives in this room. You know, the north of England will be defined for the rest of this century and beyond by the decisions that are made on HS2 and NPR at, 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 here in Leeds but also at the heart of the system in Manchester. Get them wrong. We, we in this room will be letting down you know, the, gen, the younger generation and generations yet to come because we'll, we'll, we'll leave them a railway system that is substandard for the north as it has been throughout all of our lifetimes. And it's a fight we need to have, and it's a fight we need to win. Um, yeah. Well, you both wanted to say something. Yeah, Martin, you... Well, I was going to say, I just wanted to add to what Andy's been saying, because I think one of the things... That if, if I was a Treasury civil servant sitting in, in Whitehall looking at how the rail sector is at the moment, my experience, um, if I were to go into the Treasury... Uh, at the moment would be the, my train journey into London. Well, it's okay, because actually there's not much commuting. 
the reality in the north is very different. We are back close to pre-pandemic levels on our trains, on northern and TPE. That tells you how fundamental our railway system is to the economy of the north, how important it is to be able to connect our great cities and our surrounding areas. But that's the, the, the bias, if you like, we have to overcome within central government because they see it through the lens of London and the southeast and the experience of commuters there. The reality here is it's a truly transformational infrastructure. Yeah. And it's about growing but, the economy. But Martin, and performance is already dipping again, yes, isn't it? Yes, it is. You know, as those people are coming back and you, know, you go to platforms 13 and 14, there's so many trains coming in yep. and too many people on the platform and every train gets a bit delayed. And other, you know, as the people are coming back, the train performance is yep. going down again. And it's back in the 70 or 80 or 70% reliable. It's, it's not good enough, is it? It's and that's why, Rob, we've got to have this strong voice focused on the offer, focused on what we need to be delivering. And that's why things like the Northern Transport Charter are so important. That's why the work of TFN moving forward is going to be so important. Excellent. We've got four minutes left. I want to hear from Gemma and from Aviano on this question of what is the relationship like in your view between the Treasury and the North? What's your view, Gemma? Um, so just to quickly start with a positive. I think if you look at the Treasury spending plans for the next few years, they have very, very tight plans for day-to-day -day spending and a much looser envelope of money available for capital spending. So if the government is going to deliver and demonstrate something on levelling up, it's going to be much easier to do that out of capital infrastructure spending. So I think that's a positive for transport in that there is more money there to go around. Um, the government clearly is committed to doing something on levelling up and that clearly does mean things outside London and the South East. Um, my negative caution would be that there's still a lot lack of clarity about exactly what the government does mean by levelling up. And without that sort of clarity, it's very hard to make the case for what's the most effective way of doing this and how do you build the sort of business case for the sorts of investments that you think are needed up here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Aviana, we've got a couple, of, a couple of minutes left for you to talk about this topic. Um, uh, what, what's your view about how central government views, views the North, are, are they willing, are they, do you think it's likely that they will cough up for the things that we need? Well, I think um, at the moment, I mean, I, I agree with what Gemma said, said just now. Um, the problem, in my view, is that, okay, the government has to deliver on levelling up. It looks like, what we've seen so far, that the focus will be very much on kind of big sort of uh, uh, infrastructure investment. But the, the big issue is that we've heard it throughout you know, the discussion in this panel. That's not the only thing that is needed. The real change has to happen through small projects, small projects that don't just focus on cities, projects that allow all kind of cities, towns and villages, all communities to be better connected. And that requires a vision that cannot come, that the centre simply doesn't have uh, alone. So trying to uh, kind of sideline side the view of the mayors um, developing project investment that actually, yes, do something that can be transformative, but essentially provide better connection to London rather than better connections across the north. Well, that's not exactly what is needed right now. I think the, the focus should be the opposite. I think is that uh, NPR is kind of on pause now. It's not, it's not clear what the future is going to be in that sense. Well, that 
that, that is something that needs to be reverted. And that's why, as Andy was saying earlier on, there is a battle to be fought, fought and this is the time to fight that battle because the focus has to be on these small, smaller projects because the bigger ones cannot change the life of all communities across the north and rebalance the economy. Can I just add very quickly to what Ariana just said, uh, Rob, because I just want to just be, be clear on this. It's a mixed picture when I was asked about the Treasury. So the, the outlook on intra-city transport through something called the City Region Sustainable Transport Fund is actually quite positive. The outlook on the big infrastructure, as I was just saying to David, is actually quite, quite negative. Um, so it's a bit, it is a bit of a mixed picture. We're, we're hoping to get a substantial amount of capital funding through the um, City Region Sustainable Transport Fund. The problem is, though, why does the North always have to choose? This is the issue, isn't it? Why is it always you can have North, South or East, West? You can have good intra-city, but not good inter And I think that's, London has never had to choose, has it? And that's the problem, I think. We need all of this, don't we, if we're to get to a level to support you know, a, a strong Northern economy. And I think this is, this is why you know, we, need to, we need to stick together, I think, in this, in this period of time. We don't want to just make our case separate to everyone else in the room. You know, we want to work with everyone in the North um, to, to make this add up for everybody. But I, I do think it is about you know, making the argument for all of it as opposed to being picked off for one bit of it versus you, know, you can have that bit but you can't have that. And I think that's, that's where it feels to me like it's shaping up at the moment. Yeah, that's a strong plea for unity to end, uh, end proceedings. Well, uh, I have to congratulate you, sir. It's such a good question that it dominated the uh, question and answer <laughs> session. We didn't have time for anything else. So apologies if anyone else had a question. But I think we're out of time now. But I will just um, say thanks very much to our panellists today. Uh, can you give them a big, big round of applause? Fantastic to hear from our panellists there all about the importance of inclusivity and accessibility in transport and the difference that can make to people's lives. We will be bringing you all of the sessions on this podcast and they are also available on our website to watch back in full. So please head to transportforthenorth.com slash annual hyphen conference to see them all. Take care and we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to the Transport for the North podcast. Don't forget you can subscribe on Spotify and SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. You can find us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook for all our latest updates. And join us on our website where you can find all the latest news and sign up to our All Points North newsletter.